This is Monocle on Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's show, we provide a wrap-up of London Fashion Week, experience the material alchemy of glass and copper at London Design Festival, and turn to Vienna for its own Design Week. All that coming up on Monocle on Design. London Fashion Week wrapped up today, bringing seven days of shows and parties to an end. And in amongst those happenings was Monocle's fashion editor, Natalie Theodosi. Over the course of the week, she caught up with numerous designers, including Daniel W. Fletcher. She spoke to him before his showcase to find out what the Fiorucci creative director had in mind for his namesake brand's outing. Daniel began by discussing his approach and reference points for this season's showcase. This year is the 10th year that I've been living in London. So I'm originally from the northwest of England. This collection is really a celebration of that. And I was really thinking about the capital and all the people and cultures that have made it what it is. So right from the punks of King's Road to the pearly kings and queens of Soho. Also look at some of the experiences that I've had since living here that have kind of made me who I am and the brand what it is today. How does that translate into the clothes? And you're showing both men's and women's wear. So how did you translate all those experiences and all those references across the collections? I think there's a real Englishness to it, actually, but an Englishness that has been turned on its head a little bit. There's this kind of real mixture of looks that feel almost quite dandy in their opulence and like the silk fabrics and the satins and the and the tweed checks but then mixed with something that feels much more underground metal studs on things raw edges on corsets and taking things that you might know from kind of like british heritage the kind of things that you would see people wearing in london across many generations and kind of mashing them all into this melting pot of kind of the dwf wardrobe And speaking about Britishness and also the attention that this season in particular at London Fashion Week has been getting, um, I have to ask you also that obviously now London Fashion Week will be happening following the news of Queen Elizabeth's passing. How do you feel about showing and, and what role can fashion play during moments like this? There was a moment, honestly, where we thought that we would cancel the show when her death was first announced. I'm very sensitive to that, you know, she was so important to a lot of people that I wanted to make sure that we were being respectful. But ultimately, London Fashion Week is a business event. It's a way for brands to show their collections that will have a direct impact on the sales for the year ahead. The Queen and the Royal Family have been a great supporter of British fashion. There is the Queen Elizabeth II Award, which is given to a young designer each year, the first being Richard Quinn. And given that, I think it's important that London Fashion Week goes ahead. As we're the opening show, I also felt like kind of a pressure to make sure that I did something that really marks that moment as well, because it is a very big thing, the Queen passing away after 70 years on the throne. So we will have a moment's silence before the show starts. And then the first look is a all black morning suit made in British wool that will have a black armband on the left sleeve. So I wanted to kind of have that moment as a tribute to the Queen, but then also 
use this moment to celebrate British fashion. And if we also now move to the making of the clothes, because you've, you have this exciting partnership with Nona Source, and I think you're one of the first designers to ever create an entire collection using upcycled fabrics. Tell me, why did you commit to going all out with a partnership and creating your entire collection using this type of fabric? What Nonosource has been doing is amazing work, actually. And I think there are a number of designers who've worked with them in the past um, to create looks and pieces for their collections. But when I spoke to them, I really thought, you know what, I want to show that we can go even further with this and show that actually we are making a full collection from these dead stock fabrics that otherwise would have gone to waste. And it's always been a really important part of my brand to make sure that we're reducing our waste and we're as sustainable as possible. And Nonosource has really allowed us to do that. I'm really grateful to them for setting up this company that is doing something with these amazing fabrics. And yeah, so I'm excited to show what you can do. You're obviously working with finite resources when you're working with upcycled fabrics, right? And I'm curious, does that uh, enhance your creativity? Does it create limitations? How does it change the way you approach design? I picked all of the fabrics for the collection without having really designed the collection at all. I had some ideas in my head about what I would want it to be, but then I went to Nonosource and I saw all of the fabrics that they had and I picked them all without really having like a firm idea. And then, and then ultimately that is what we've worked with and I've quite enjoyed that limitation. We've kind of designed it around the fabric, which has been a really interesting way of working actually. And I think the results are concise, clear collection. Does it also allow you to be as precise and meticulous as we know you always are with uh, your tailoring and, and the way you approach cut and silhouette and all of that? Yeah, definitely. Because I think if you're working with kind of a reduced number of fabrics, for example, it really has kind of encouraged me to look at, okay, how do we experiment with shape this season? And actually the shapes are that we've got much wider trousers, much stronger shoulders. You can really see an 80s influence in it in these double-breasted jackets with big shoulder pads. We've even done silk shirts with shoulder pads. And yeah, I've really had fun with the shape and silhouette this season. I know that also a lot of those fabrics are given by LVMH houses to Nona Source. And uh, I would love to get your take about LVMH's contribution and the importance for this big luxury conglomerate to contribute and to help circular fashion using their power and their resources. When a company like LVMH turns their efforts to do something sustainably, that is making a huge impact. With a brand my size, when we're collecting all of our scraps and making blankets and things out of them so it doesn't go to waste, that's obviously making a really positive impact. But when you do it on the scale of LVMH, if they were doing that same thing, like collecting all of their scraps and reusing them to make new items, then that's when you see like a massive impact on the planet. So I'm really pleased to see that they've introduced Nomosource and that they are finding a use for their dead stock fabrics. I hope that they will continue to do more of it because it's so important now. And shall we talk a little bit about Fiorucci as well, because that's another brand that has such an impact in London these days with the famous store in Soho and new retail pop-ups uh, in East London as well. How do you balance your two roles as creative director at Fiorucci and your own brand and get creative when you're designing the, the two collections? People often ask me this and I just say that I work seven days on Daniel Fletcher and then I work seven days on Fiorucci. So <laughs> somehow I'm managing to fit 14 days into each week. But in terms of feeling inspired, I think there's such a contrast between the brands. 
Daniel W. Fletcher is very much inspired by my own experience and kind of my personal life experience and the things that I like, and it's very much me. Whereas Firuchi has got such a rich archive and history, the collections almost design themselves because when I go to the archive, I just feel so inspired straight away because there's such incredible things in there that that is a, an identity that should never be reinvented. It should just be pushed even further. And I think there's so much to go on that it's an absolute joy to design for them. It sounds amazing. And it sounds like you can move between the two seamlessly. Just to end, obviously, London Fashion Week is happening and there might be a little bit more of a somber mood this time around. But how do you feel about uh, the future of British fashion and London Fashion Week now that the world is open again, buyers are back to London? Do you feel optimistic and do you feel that British fashion will be able to uphold its reputation as one of the most creative uh, boundary pushing industries? Absolutely. I think if you look at the talent that has come out of Britain in the last kind of even just five years, there's some really brilliant names up there, the likes of, you know, Craig Green and Wales Bonner and Molly Goddard. Like these designers are people who I think will be around for years and years and years to come. The new kids coming up now, the likes of like a Chet Lowe, for example, Connor Ives, like these are people who are breathing new life into British fashion. I think there's such a great hub here for new brands that I'm excited for what the future holds. That was the designer Daniel W. Fletcher there speaking to Monocle's fashion editor, Natalie Theodosi. We'll have more from this year's event later in the program. We stay in the UK capital now, where London Design Festival is in full flow. The event is celebrating its 20th outing this year. And key to those celebrations are the happenings at the V&A Museum. Here, a glass-blowing studio has set up shop in the central garden, allowing visitors to experience material alchemy up close. To find out more, this show's producer, Maylee Evans, caught up with the co-founder of Canadian lighting brand Bocci, Omer Arbel. The Canadian polymath began by explaining exactly what was going on in the courtyard. We are reconfiguring some molecules. In my fantasy, we are melting antiquities from the V&A's permanent collection. But that's just my fantasy. I was actually not allowed to do that. So we are melting other antiquities, glass ones and copper ones, so that the form of these things is changing in the hands of these glass blowers into a glass shape. And then liquid copper from other melted artifacts is poured in. Here's the moment of pouring. So the copper has been poured into the glass form and so far the temperature is close enough that everything seems fine, they coexist nicely together. But very soon they'll start contracting at different rates as a result of cooling. And then slowly, slowly you'll start seeing first one crack and then another and then all of a sudden you'll see this kind of explosive shattering of the glass away from the copper. And then after some more time passes, the copper has had time to completely cool It'll be taken out of these boxes and placed in that tray over there. And from there, back to the exhibition area at the Santa Chiara Chapel. So if you have patience now to observe it, it might be a minute or ten minutes. You'll start seeing it crack. But I won't hold you to... No, <laughs> it is weirdly captivating, even though, again, it's kind of almost like watching like an egg hatch or something. So there's a nice story about transformation here because, first of all, 
consider the symbolic and emotional associations of these objects. They might have had different lives in the hands of so many different people, melted and then formed into a shape. That shape is destroyed to make another shape. Anyone coming along to the BNA can see this process happening in real time. So just now I've seen another piece shatter off this coffer vessel here. Tell me about that process and why it was key to have that on show. I think that the artifacts, as interesting as they are, are not really the project. The project is this sort of choreography that you see here of molecules and humans manipulating them. That's the project. And, and so I, it was very important for me to not show a finished piece, but rather to show what I call the performance of the work. I see myself as a symphony conductor, and these are the musicians. And the same piece of music can be played by a different musician and sound completely differently, totally different emotional quality, and that's the case here. It was important for me to have that contingency available for an audience to participate in. We've been working with copper and glass for about five or six years, and in all that time my struggle has been to try to coax the coefficient of expansion of the two materials together. In other words, to change the recipes such that they expand and contract at exactly the same rate. And the intent there was to try to have metal forms that are glassy and glass forms that are metallic. To have one take on formal characteristics of the other, to have the materials make forms that they would never conceivably be able to make on their own. And that's been the project for five years with increasing sophistication and complexity, but any good thing implies its opposite. And so here I decided to reverse the relationship to make the coefficients of expansion vastly different such that the two could coexist, but only for seconds before they reject each other in this dramatic way. Okay, so here you get to observe uh, the ceremonial melting of an artifact. So imagine, if you will, that this was procured from the permanent collection. There it goes. It's been described as like a, a performance. And tell me a bit about the procession. I understand there's, there's a bit of movement. We're moving elsewhere in the BNA. Yeah, so there's the Santa Chiara Chapel where these works are being exhibited. Um, and it was very important for me to draw a um, direct visual connection between the artifacts being melted and before the transformation and then the artifacts after the transformation. When our glassblower team makes their way from one side to the other, either bringing the antiquities here to melt or the 113s there to exhibit, it seemed to me an opportunity to reinforce that feeling of transformation and ritual the ceremony of it. So I asked them to walk very slowly. <laughs> I was wondering how, 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 how choreographed this was. And to wear white gloves. And, and the white gloves are only to suggest that fictional idea that I'm actually melting the collection. And we've been stopped by security guards a few times. <laughs> They're like, what are you doing? Stop. <laughs> it's nice that the glass, too, is melted from antiquities. It's a non-discriminatory process that any glass will do, any metal will do. This sort of um, purity that we are accustomed to when working with glass or metal, where we have to very rigorously control the composition of the material, is, is completely meaningless here. We can use whatever comes to hand. And I could throw glass bottles from sodas into this in there if I wanted to, or coins into there. And so with the different coppers, are you, you're getting the characters? Or yeah, we're getting wonderful different colors. You see there's blue and, and 
bold. Uh, that's new. With, uh, straight copper, it, it, it turns out like that piece at the very end there, sort of orangey copper. You're finding out the makeup of the alloy, I guess. As you yeah, as we go, we're making around. weird alloys, yeah. And so where does this fit into your sort of wider practice? The yeah. practice is all about ways of transforming materials. Previously, I didn't really care where the materials came from. But working here, it started to dawn on me that there's a lot more that's being transformed than just the molecules. The allegorical presence of these pieces, their emotional qualities, their symbolic qualities, all these things are also being transformed. And that started to layer some more meaning into the project. The one sort of leap for me forward here is that I've always considered the works in isolation of their symbolic meaning or allegorical meaning, but here there's no avoiding it. In fact, it's kind of an exciting part of the work, and that's something I'll take forward into new projects. Omar Abel there, co-founder of Bocce. He was speaking to Maylie Evans at the installation Material Experiments at the V&A Museum. The London Design Festival is on until the 25th of September and, rest assured, you'll hear coverage across On Design and M24 over the coming week. We turn our focus back to London Fashion Week. Michael Halpin quickly made a name for himself as a purveyor of glamorous embellished garments. After just one collection, Bergdorf Goodman, Matches Fashion and Browns flocked to stock his wares. Monocle's fashion editor, Natalie Theodosi, was curious to discover what concepts and narratives would be on show when the designer returned to London Fashion Week. She began by asking him what to expect this time around. I was really thinking a lot about the home this season and the collection is really two-pronged in that sense. We have a collection that is based on my mother's clothing that she brought from New York City to upstate New York when she left and, and married my dad. Really fabulous printed house gowns and and really long caftans and, and twisted velvet evening dresses that she would wear to host parties at my family's home in upstate New York. And that sort of fed perfectly into the collaboration we're doing this season, which is with Barbie, celebrating the 60th year of Barbie Dreamhouse. Tell me a little bit about that collaboration. How did it come about and why was it appealing to you and your brand to collaborate with uh, Barbie? The conversation with Barbie started really organically because we've worked with them before. It was a really fun process working with Barbie and the whole team uh, at Mattel, seeing everything in one sixth scale. It felt really good and natural. The more more I learned about Barbie and the, the values that Barbie has about inclusivity and the real idea of fantasy and escapism that is so deeply rooted in my work that when the opportunity came to do a, a project like this for the show, I really jumped at it because I could see a well of references and research that could have a really exciting, fun collection. And that's the mood I was feeling. I was feeling we were coming out of lockdown. We were coming out of COVID in a really dark time that all I want to do is celebrate and make beautiful clothes and, and do things that bring people joy and that can really harness the power of fashion and in a way that feels really intrinsic to the way I work at Halpern. 
do you think there's a lot of value in big companies like Mattel partnering with younger businesses like yours in terms of that dialogue that you have and also sharing some of their resources and, and the scale of their platform with an independent brand like yours? For us, it's an incredible thing to have such a brand like Mattel and Barbie sponsor the show because we get such an amazing amount of support from them. We get access to their archives, which is, oh my gosh, if you could go in there, it's unbelievable. The decades worth of, of research and, and imagery they have, it's just insane. How did going back to those 60 years of archives and also looking back at your mother's clothes influence the designs coming down the catwalk? Within the show this season, there's somewhere from eight to 10 Barbie-inspired looks in this little cabin within the show. Then there will be the normal Halpern collection alongside of that. But for me... You'll be able to really see a distinctive time and place from a set design, from music, from production, from collection, hair and makeup, where the Barbie section starts. The ethos of the collection is really one and the same. It's about celebrating what it looks like being creative in a home and how that can really influence me as a designer. And it did my upbringing, seeing things in my home from being a child in my childhood bedroom That is where all of the creativity started for me. And it's the place I could dream. It's the place I could fantasize in upstate New York where there wasn't a ton of fashion around. What I was exposed to was the incredible influence of my mother and her friends. And you're going to see a lot of real personal motifs really arise in the collection from the neon glow-in-the-dark stars on my childhood bedroom that's been interpreted in this velvet glitter-flocked story to the chevron that is so synonymous with Barbie and the original bathing suit that they did for her to the sunset palette of the homes in the 70s. Another thing that you've made a point to do the last few years and really has always stood out was making a point to use your shows as a platform to either send a broader message, to give back to communities, whether it was the frontline workers or the dance professionals that had been out of job during the various lockdowns. So I'd love to hear what the message is this season and how maybe the partnership with Mattel and all the research and the references that you've been doing into your childhood fueled the, the narrative that you will be presenting this season. There was a real mind shift for me over the pandemic and over over the kind of lockdown period where just doing a show for a show's sake wasn't enough for me anymore. And I, I needed to involve communities or have a broader message when it comes to the collection. Because of course, at the end of the day, we are a business, but that doesn't mean that business can't have real kind of rooted purpose for me that is bigger than selling clothes. And that's my focus with Halpern now. When the opportunity came to work with Barbie, you could really send that message in a, in a much bigger way. Creativity from a younger age, being able to be who you are, the fantasy, no matter what gender, what kind of upbringing you have, you can always play, you can always dream, you can always play in that Barbie dream house. I think there really is a lot of creative energy, like you say, all around London, right? And there was 
a lot of excitement and a lot of the big retail players coming to the city maybe for the first time since the pandemic. But of course, the Fashion Week is now happening in a more somber mood after Queen Elizabeth's passing. So I'd love to get your take on um, the role of fashion and creativity during times like this. There's a very specific reason why people look to London as as kind of the creative hub for for interesting ideas. And I think because London is so supportive of independent brands, of young brands that are all interested in different things, that's what makes London as a fashion week, in my opinion, the most exciting fashion week for young talent, myself included in that. This city really supports people who have a unique and specific point of view. It doesn't matter what you're obsessed with or what type of clothing you do, as long as you're obsessed with that and you're focused on that. And I think because of that, there is a real way that London designers can come out of difficult times with a really interesting proposal from a design point of view. The whole time I've had Halpern, it's been about that, right? I started Halpern at a time where it was a really tumultuous time for American politics. Donald Trump was president. He was really making the country divided. And my way of dealing with that from a creative point of view was to design a collection that said, we're not going to stand for this. You know, it's that glamorous opposition that really started Halpern for me. This season is almost no different. It really shows the resilience that British designers have. For me, the greatest way you can come out of these dark times, especially when the country is in mourning, is by creativity, by promoting creativity and allowing people to express themselves in whatever way they feel necessary to deal with grief, to move on, to explore their creativity in a way that can help themselves, that can help others, that can inspire others. Out of darkness, you really can really bring something beautiful, and that's what I plan to do this season. The fashion designer Michael Halperin there in conversation with Monocle's fashion editor, Natalie Theodosi. Vienna Design Week is taking place for the 16th time, and this year, much of the program is devoted to Maria Hilf, Vienna's sixth district and longtime commercial and artisanal neighbourhood. Our man in Vienna, Monocle's Alexei Koryalov, sent us this report. The project is all about a new uh, packaging concept. We created a workshop method for developing industrial kitchens. The company Miramondo, and uh, our purpose was to, to create uh, furniture for public space. Okay, so my diploma project is about uh, alternative ways of navigating. And I Voices from across Vienna Design Week 2022. The projects are varied, and so are the artists. There is no one theme. So we, in the last years, we were in double-digit districts, Meidling and Brigittenau, the 12th and the 20th district. But just as it does every year, the festival has a Fokusbezirk, or Focus District. And this time, it's a special one. Uh, I'm uh, Gabriel Roland, uh, director of Vienna Design Week. 
Um, so we felt like this year, on the one hand, it was interesting for us to jump closer into the city center, into a single-digit district, the sixth, Maria Hilf. And on the other hand, um, the sixth district is at the moment a district where a lot of stuff is going on. Um, a lot of things are in, in flux. People have different uh, opinions on how the city should develop, or there are certain uncertainties how the city will develop. And it's just a, a district with a strong creative scene. Uh, it's a district with a lot of shops, a lot of things going on, but also quiet neighborhoods and hidden things. So uh, all of these things are the prerequisite for having a, a good focus district. For all its artistic credentials, the 6th district of Vienna is best known as a seat of Austrian consumerism. And one festival entry takes aim at precisely that. It's a wardrobe on wheels that acts as a mobile clothes swap. Uh, my name is Alexandra Frustorfer. I'm a designer and researcher based in Vienna. Um, and together with Nina Sandino, a performance artist, um, we are the team behind the project Dare to Share and Wear. The, a very important part of the concept to be mobile because we want to be present in public space. Uh, we want people to see us. We want the residents and the shoppers of uh, Marilferstrasse to see us. Uh, which is the mecca of shopping and consumerism in Vienna. Yes, uh, we call it the El Dorado of fast fashion. Uh, the Marilferstrasse is really famous for, uh, you have all of the corporations ranging from H&M, Zara, like you find uh, all the companies that produce in the global south mostly. So in India, Bangladesh, also China, of course, uh, in countries that uh, have uh, way other standards for production and ethical standards than, for example, here in Austria. And those global connections are really important in our project, uh, like how can we create a, a kind of solidarity with other countries also and the workers in other countries. It's really not only about clothes swapping and providing kind of a platform to share, but really about sharing uh, ideas and thoughts of how uh, the fashion industry can transform into something that's more equal uh, and a bit more caring also for the people behind it and for the environment. It's, uh, it has implications too. So. Another exploration of local retail is a project called Expo. I'm Theo Deutinger. I'm an architect uh, from Austria. I'm Pia Brandl, also educated as an architect. What we did is actually a um, kind of design research project. We mapped all institutions of uh, part of the district. And there we found that there's a high concentration of jewelry shops. So we found two areas which we called gold, where there is this high concentration. Also, an, interestingly enough, a furniture area where there's a lot of furniture stores and a lot of cafes, a theater area. So we uh, found actually hidden concentrations. We called it also Expo to celebrate the existing here, the existing power which the Bezirk already has. Contrary to the World Expo, where you present the world, we present the district. Yes, there are fantastic uh, institutions like the um, piano manufacturing. I mean, they, right in the city center of Vienna, they make pianos. Mm. And you walk by, the windows are open. They are working in a, in a which looks like a residential building. It's a piano factory. Mm. And you have, we've had a lot of these surprising Findings. When you started researching um, and talking to all these people, what was their reaction? And did anybody say no? No, I don't want you here. Or was everybody happy that you're coming? And most of the people seem quite interested in it because it's also an advantage for them, of course. Um, it's also a bit advertisement, I think, for them. Some even asked if they have to pay <laughs> for it. 
yeah so it was yeah most of them quite quite liked it yeah they're quite happy as a whole, we produced and organized a very large festival this year. The, the program is huge. Of course, this has to do with a rebound after the pandemic, but it also has to do with a certain density in the 6th district. So this is, we've, we just found great, uh, great people to talk to here. A last word from Vienna Design Week director Gabriel Roland. And this is, this is our mission to ourselves is to be out there, to be where design should take place. And that's where, where people are with needs and desires and, and things to do. Um, and so if, if you and others perceive it that way, this is great, it's a success. For Monocle in Vienna, I'm Alexei Korolev. Thanks, Alexei. Vienna Design Week runs until the 25th of September, 2022. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. And if you enjoy print, then do pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well. It's on all good newsstands now. Today's episode was produced by Maylee Evans. She also edited the show with assistance from Steph Chungu. I'm Nick Manise, and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening.